You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And uh, before we start, um, oh, I'll tell you what, Mark, 60 seconds on the spot, talking about the long game. The long game. Oh, yes. So that was, I suppose it's the nearest we got to an old school Doctor Who story in series one. Um, Simon Pegg made an appearance as a, a guest baddie with really bad hair. Um, you had the unpronounceable bad monster that was suspended from the ceiling, the Jagrafessor. I can't say the whole thing because my brain would explode. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. A lot of people really don't like it, but I thought it was okay. Um, and obviously it was the end of Adam's little run in the TARDIS, so... RTD's chance to show that not everyone's cut out to to be a companion. Um, what else can I think of? Precious little. Not very much. No. <laughs> the mighty Jagrafess of the Holy Hadra. The yeah. Yeah. Maxi Jag- Rodden. No, 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 no. The Jagrafess of the Holy Hadra. Jassic Maxi Rodden. The mighty Jagrafess. It, it was mighty or Max. You can call him Max. Uh, we've just got to the end of 60 seconds there. <laughs> I'll tell you what then, Lee, you've got 60 seconds on The Unquiet Dead. Oh, wow. The Unquiet Dead has left a massive last impression on my son. Yeah, that was the first really scary Doctor Who that he'd ever watched. Um, after watching the first two, he wasn't that scared by it. But uh, there's something about that... Um, a pre-title sequence with the woman walking towards, uh, you know, the screen with her eyes all wide and her mouth blazing, uh, and that just has haunted him forever. Anything with wide eyes, <laughs> he can't look at. Gollum was a nightmare for him for a long time. But as far as the story is concerned, um, I loved it. I loved it. I know Mark Gatiss said it turned into more of a romp than what he really wanted, and I think what he really wanted was uh, the Crimson Horror, actually, uh, which is closer to what I imagine him trying to achieve in that kind of horror genre but no brilliant Simon Callow was was lovely and I absolutely really wanted him to jump on the TARDIS with the with the crew um nice direction it's pleasant it wasn't over the top it wasn't ex- that exciting but it was okay and I just think one of the best moments of the whole thing was when Rose first takes a step out of the TARDIS into the snow and it's her first time uh you know traveling through time and okay that's, that's all I can say with it yeah, so, you did a uh, minute and 15. But then Mark <laughs> came in 10 seconds or so short. So, Simon, are you back at the microphone? I am now, yes. Okay, well, what do you want me to give you uh, 60 seconds on? Oh, God. <laughs> I'll let you choose a the story. process of sleep. No, 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 that's not going to happen. Okay, <laughs> since you were incapable of choosing your own story, I will give you Boomtown. Boomtown, um, 
starring uh, the lady who I have one of her hats. And trying to remember her name. What was her name again? Oh yeah, Nat Badland. Bless her. Lovely lady. She she donated a hat to Phonicon and we have yet to find out exactly what television programme the hat was actually on. As it was, Boomtown was um better than I thought it was gonna be. Uh it was the return of the the Slitheen. God almighty, my brain is not working this evening. Um Return of the Slitheen and it felt a little bit too soon at first, but I thought it worked quite well and um Quite nice to get those one-to-one conversations over the table between the Doctor and Margaret Slovene. Um And she's kind of showing a new side to the, a side to the new series in as much as um, treating the aliens as individuals. Um, in the previous Slovene, obviously, they were treated as a race, just general baddies. And then for her to come back on her own and, and to see a side of it um, that you, you don't tend to see in the old Doctor Who, um, of seeing, much like the Silurians, seeing um, a side to the... To see the motivation. My God, my brain is not working this evening. Okay, Simon, you've gone well over a minute anyway. <laughs> God. <laughs> Let me stop you before it gets any worse. I know, it's horrible. <laughs> um, okay, nice hat, guys. Though. Well, you've all done an on the spot. Um, what was the connection between those three stories? First series one. Yes. yes. And what are we going to be talking about tonight? Season one. Okay. Here is an email from Sookie Cuck. He says, "Today I discovered your Facebook, rediscovered your Facebook page, and more importantly, the forum bit where JR has listed all the past episodes and subjects for future podcasts. And anybody who finds our Facebook page can also." Go on the forum and you'll find a guide to all our episodes. Uh, but Sookie says, I was confused by the title listed for episode 65, season 1. That's being this episode, of course. Mm-hmm. To the best of my knowledge, the BBC don't call their yearly blocks of episodes of Doctor Who seasons. They have always been known as series. Ignoring that bit came the second part of my confusion. What did season 1 mean? If the boys had gone all American on me, then did they mean season 1 of the whole series? as in 1963-64, or the very first series of the reboot, as in 2005. A couple of Facebook messages on the newly rediscovered delights of the Blue Box podcast page. Thanks, Mark. And I was told it was Hartnell's debut season. I mean series. Damn you, JR. I'm all (laughs) mixed up. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? I think we've touched on it before, but we do call the 26th series of the classic season... Uh, of the classic series, seasons, don't we? Yeah. And, we and why is that? Didn't you have a theory that it's to do with the fact that we didn't really have any kind of history of a fandom quite like this in Britain, and we kind of got borrowed ter- it from the American yeah, fandom? We got our terminology from America. Because previously, although on uh, on air, they they would say Doctor Who will return for a new series or Doctor Who's back for a new series, mm-hmm. there weren't guidebooks and things, not really. And so when, you know, fandom started to sprout and needed to talk about Doctor Who in terms of the discrete series that existed, they kind of got their terminology from America. And it's one of those things that just kind of, once it's bedded in, <clears throat> it's almost impossible to do anything about. So there you go. We have... 26 seasons and since then we've had seven series which does actually make it quite nice in that if you say season five 
everybody knows you're talking about Patrick Troughton and the monsters. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you say series five, everybody knows you're talking about Matt Smith and his cracks. So, <laughs> so it does mean it's easy to uh, differentiate between the old and the new. It's funny, really, because in theory, in isolation, you'd think it'd be the other way around. You'd think the old series would have been series. And the new ones. Yeah, seasons. But it doesn't work like that. It's very no. Hmm. But it, I quite like it. it. I mean, I don't like the fact that we've borrowed our terminology from elsewhere, but I like the fact that it makes it easy to differentiate. Hmm. Um, Sucky carries on. The first time I saw William Hartnell's story was in 1981, an unearthly child repeated as part of the five faces of Doctor Who. Um, as an 11-year-old, it was magical. Having read The Making of Doctor Who by Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk, I already knew what the story was all about. But to see it in all its glory was another thing. Um, The Doctor and Susan couldn't be trusted. You didn't know what his motivations were in that first episode. What secret was he hiding? It made for bloody good TV. I enjoyed the rest of that serial, but having watched it again years later when I bought the DVD, only the first episode is worthy of classic Doctor Who status, whereas the Tribe of Gum episodes are plodding. Uh, right, I'll save the rest of Sookie's email for as we go through the stories by themselves. But are you ready to talk about these stories, guys? Bring oh, it yeah. on. And that means no, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I tell you what, we're not going to talk about all eight stories in the first season. Okay. We're, we're only going to talk about seven of them because uh, right, yeah, okay. Marco Polo not existing in the form of audio and visual together we are gonna we're gonna leave that one out for this uh, you know this point in time maybe then, we'll come back to it yeah we'll save it for the missing episodes when we do <laughs> yeah or we'll save it for when the dvd comes out in january <laughs> so what we did initially was we voted for the seven stories that do exist in our order of preference and when I put the votes together, the one that came in last place, well, would anybody like to take a wild <laughs> guess? I'll do it. Go on. <laughs> that one. That's correct. Um, i tell you what, three of the four of us voted it last. Oh, come yep. on, listeners, you know what story we're talking about. Three of the four of us voted the censor rights last, but one of us didn't. Eh? Who was that? Yes. Who was well, that? on a previous podcast, one of the four of us has said that the Edge of Destruction was his least favourite Doctor Who story ever. Mm. So it would have been pretty hypocritical then of me not to put Edge of Destruction <laughs> seventh of the seven, wouldn't it? Yes, it would have done. <laughs> Do you know what? Is the sense rights really that bad? No. It's not not bad. It's just very very dull. There's the, yeah. there, there are things in it. I still ne- I still haven't got to the end of it, so I haven't really got a leg to stand on. But uh, I, have to admit, first... I made it through about three episodes, and I just couldn't yeah. face any more. I know. I'd, what is it? I mean, I just mm, I don't know. There's a nice darkness to it. There's a nice kind of eerie. Um, is there mis- a darkness a mis- to yeah, it? Yeah. Well, there's a bit of mystery to it. It's a little bit, you know, it's in a dark ship type thing. You know, it's almost like. Alien, isn't it, with uh, bits of cardboard? But anyway, uh, no, that first episode is pretty good. I didn't, I didn't mind it at all. But as soon as you hit mm. the second and third, I'm like going, "What? There's not really much going on here." I'm not even sure the first episode's any good. It has a, <laughs> it, there's a nice <laughs> bit at the end where it's the sensorite comes yeah. up to the window, right? That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, actually. it's good on fast and forward. Yeah, 
there's a nice bit where they walk out of the TARDIS and the camera pretty much follows them through the doors, mm-hmm. which, you know, is not something... Well, I mean, this was fairly early, so we'd never seen it before, but we certainly no. didn't see it again afterwards. No, that was a very, very beautiful shot, actually. I like. But that. when they when they wake John and Carol up, or whatever they're called, is it John and Carol? Yeah, like even dull names. And no, <laughs> yeah. offense, no offense to anybody called Carol or John, but oh, you, my God, in space. This is, this is just a few months after we'd had um, <laughs> Alidon and Temesis yeah. and all this lot in the Daleks, and now we've century. got John and Carol. <laughs> But when they wake up, oh my god, it is like watching something that's been written for two-year-olds. It is Interesting fact for you guys. Go on. The lead centre, right, was uh, the original person cast for that was Desmond Decker. What? What, as in the singer? Yeah. As in Israelites? Yeah, well, he went on to do a song about it. Oh god, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) That was... Can we cut off? (laughs) Oh, we may, Simon, we may have to edit that bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll get me coat. <clears throat> I know. I mean, uh, the Sensorized is one of those weird stories. Everything, for everything that's good in it, there's something that's bad. And, you know, stories like the... People, you know, complain about Richard Martin and his direction, right? Because, you know, if there's something that can go wrong, it will go wrong in a Richard Martin story the Dalek that's in the place where it shouldn't be in the chase, and later on in the same story, the camera that just appears in the middle of the jungle, all that kind of thing. There's smeared lenses in the web planet. But to be honest, if Richard Martin had directed the Sensorites, it would probably be twice as good as it is now, if only for the fact that it would be amusing. Mm. Because it doesn't even have that in its favour, does it? It's just slow and dull. It is. Well, what, what are the positive points to it? I mean, the only thing I can think of is the actual creation of the Sensorites themselves, because they're a lovely creation, even with their funny big plate feet. Really? <laughs> they're just a really thin cotton boiler suit with a not very interesting head on the top. Well, they've got any, like an upside down head. I know people like that. They've got, you know, if you turn their heads upside down. You are upside, one, aren't if, you? If you, t- <laughs> you turn their heads upside down, they look just like that. I'm not going to say who they are, but there's two people at least I can think of that look like that. Um, you uh, and Mark? Oh, Mark hasn't got a beard, has he? <laughs> to the sensorites. Now upside down, yeah. So he's got a little tuft of hair. He's got no hair on top of his head, old Mark. You can't, you can't do it that way. Um, I thought I can I rename this the Sensnorites. Is that right? Oh God, that's nearly as bad as Mark's. <laughs> really. Hey, you just mix the letters up so it's a Sensnorites. Sensnorites. You know, for the the the, the so it's a science fiction. It's a future story, right? In mm. past, sideways, and future, it's a future. But it, I was just going to say, it's science fiction. It's not really science fiction. It's not really science fiction at all. And you can tell it's not science fiction when this alien species is so badly written that they can't recognise one another without, you know, the number on their tunics. <laughs> but what? Uh, sashes. I had not. Yeah, the sashes. Yeah. But the, <laughs> then the right is. It's a moral story. It's a story about morals. The The future stories in the first few years of Doctor Who were more about the morals than the science. You know, the Daleks is about Ian's dilemma, the Doctor's dilemma. And the Sensorites is about... It's a moral story about rights and wrongs. And at the end of the story, it's about who are the real monsters. And it turns out the humans, the ones who arrived there first, 
who've been poisoning the Sensorites are the real monsters. And that's quite an interesting idea, but, you know, the writer fudges that story up in so many other ways, you kind of tend to lose anything that's really good about it. Well, in, you know in that... The, you know how Invasion of Time runs. You know the point where the Sontorans come into Invasion of Time, and you, you kind of it almost feels like the story's concluding, and then all of a sudden Sontorans turn up, and mm. it goes off at a different angle. Mm-hmm. Well, for anyone who does, hasn't made it through the Sensorites, you get to about episode four, and it goes off at a different angle, but it's the same as the previous angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you've got a good. Good sensorites, bad sensorites, but you kind of find out they're only bad sensorites because they're a bit paranoid. And mm. there's also, um, what do you call it? What can you have racism against aliens? I don't know. There's that bit where Susan says, "Well, oh, look at their big flappy feet." Uh, well, it's a kind of bigger thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I love their big flappy feet. Actually, one thing about Susan, she's not screaming all the way through it, is she? If I remember, or right. tripping over. No, she's I, actually. I think this acting. is one of the, yeah. I think this is one of the few stories where they actually give her a bit of oh, she is an alien after all stuff to do that's at right, the start yeah. because she has a bit of mind reading and things uh, in yeah, the last right. couple of episodes. So she's she? got she's got that kind of mysteriousness that she had in the first episode, but she completely loses and becomes a screaming teenager for the rest of her her tenure. But um, I think the thing about this story is season one as a whole. And probably season two to an extent, but not nearly so much. But season one as a whole is very, very slow. I mean, the three cavemen episodes in An Unearthly Child, there's precious little story there. You could probably have told that in 25 minutes. The Daleks, for sure, you could have told in an hour and 20 minutes because they managed to do it in the film without cutting absolutely anything. Mm -hmm. And The Censor Rights is another case in point. But if you're going to have something that's that slow, you need to fill it with something else instead. Some other kind of, you know, something else to colour it in. Yeah, and plot. plot. I don't know, that would help. But I don't know. No, that's what I'm saying. The plots <laughs> are really slow. You need to fill it in with character or background colour, interesting dialogue that sort of trips off the tongue. Or, you know, a sense of place that kind of draws you in and gives you a sense of realism, perhaps a bit like maybe the Keys of Marinus does. But in the sensor rights, it's really, really slow, and there is nothing there to fill in the background and give you, you know, something to fill your mind to concentrate on while it's waiting for the plot to kick into gear. Yeah, the future is definitely bland, isn't it? Yeah. I think a problem they had right the way through the classic series was getting decent stories together and even season one i think i'm right in saying they brought forward the daleks that was going to be further on in the season and um terry nation had handed it in early because he was desperate to go off on some jolly somewhere off abroad and uh it just so happened that they had a real problem one of the stories so they were grateful for that and they shoved it in in the second uh, story slot and uh it wouldn't surprise me if this was another one that they had a bit of a problem with Oh, they had all sorts of trouble. Um, I didn't realise Daleks had been brought forward. I thought that yeah. was just a replacement altogether for something else. The uh, which one was that? That was the, that ma- the, w- the Masters of Lu- Luxor. Is that what you're talking about? That was a story that got knocked on the head. Yeah. Um. Oh, I'm not sure. 
I've got my books here, but I can't be bothered to look at it. <laughs> um, uh, look, Sookie Kark says, after the superb heights of historical drama comes the rather dreary blandness of the censorites. I watched this on a second or third generation videotape copy at my local Doctor Who group, The Wolves of Fenric in Wolverhampton. Get it? Did you get it? Quality. And after about two episodes, the group, which had consisted of about 25 people watching, had dwindled down to five as they had decided to walk off and chat in the other room. Not a great story. And basically, I can't remember much about it except for the people walking off. Harsh, but fair. That just about says it all. <laughs> OK, let's see what Suki has to say about our story that comes second to last. He says, The Edge of Destruction were two episodes of tension building up to a climax where somebody turns off a switch. Sorry about the spoilers, he says, but it was shown 49 years ago. <laughs> and that's all he has to say about The Edge of Destruction. That yeah. was a story we voted second to last. And I have to say, shockingly, one of the four of us uh, voted this as their favourite story of season one. Now, Simon, would you like to, Simon? Would you like to explain yourself? The thing is with the old—that uh, <laughs> sounds uh, like an excuse. No, no, the right. Thing the is... thing, well, when you look at the old series, sometimes—I mean, I—I I do struggle to watch them sometimes, and they are—they're like little little creatures in amber. Are you and... saying that the best thing about The Edge of Destruction is the <laughs> fact that it's only half the length of anything else? No, do you know what? There's no other story like it, and I know you're going to say, thank God. But I I, I just I watched it this week before we were doing this, and I would have um, voted one of the other stories my favourite. Uh, incidentally, the same as Mark. Um, but I watched it, and I just thought, it's an absolute little uh, folly. It's just really odd. And... It's fascinating. And I don't think any other story in that first season is quite as odd and weird uh, as it. And I just thought, I, I knew full well that Joe was going to vote it last. And I knew that no one else Ooh. was going to give it decent votes. Tactical and voting, Mr. It, Brett. Well, it, you could call it that. But I just thought it deserves something. It deserves, um, you know... Uh, a pat on the back, and it's like a, it's another a love of monsters in its own way. It's another love of monsters for that time because it is, you've got all that psychological stuff going. The TARDIS behaving in a completely weird way, in as much as it's alive and it's sending messages and what have you. And and yes, you're absolutely right. It is hilarious at the end when it's all down <laughs> to a dodgy switch. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Can I just cut in there? I think I, you're, you're starting to make me swing towards Edge a bit more because I like the fact that it's all hinging on a dodgy switch. I mean, the more we say it, the more it feels right. Because let's face it, our lives hang on dodgy switches all the time when we turn on the computer every single day. And uh, look at Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, which exactly. is the other TARDIS bottle episode, yeah. and that also hinges on a dodgy switch. It does. <laughs> Edge of Destruction Part 2, as I call it. But... Uh, yeah, Edge of Destructions are, are really... It is odd, isn't it? I mean, I think there, there, there are a few mistakes made that they learnt by. Like, for instance, having uh, Susan with a pair of scissors attacking a bench, uh, which, when you say it out loud, sounds nuts, doesn't it? But, um, you know, kids can copy that and all that sort of thing. And it's, it, was a, it was a bad mistake. They, they learnt from it, I think. But I think I, they it, also it learned to, that... It had to be done. <laughs> I think they also learned that if you're going to leave bits of paper hanging around 
on the TARDIS console that somebody from the production team should come in and clear them away before you turn the cameras on. <laughs> I thought yeah. the Doctor just felt tipped it on there himself. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I quite like uh, Edge of Destruction. I quite enjoy it. I, it's If I had to sort of judge it based on the rest of the season, it didn't come very high. But I quite I could go back and watch that again quite happily, whereas I wouldn't do that with the Sensorites. It is entertaining. I mean, yeah. yeah, not not entertaining in the amazing episode kind of way, but just entertaining because it's it's just very very strange. It's a chance um, to see one of the great things about that first series is that beautiful TARDIS set. You see yes. more of it. You get to see the cast, which you know I love all the the companions of the first series, and you get to see more of them. I mean, I love the fact that they all wake up and don't really know who they are or what's going on or completely dis- disorientated. It's quite psychological and it's certainly not a children's drama at all. I think it's just the payoff that spoils it a bit. <laughs> it builds up quite a good story, but the payoff is a bit weak. Yeah, it is a bit weak. Um, there's something else I wanted to say about this one, actually. it was uh, I, I truly believe that this probably would have worked better for people if it had been... Uh, in the next season, early in the next season, because that by that point you'll have trusted. You, you get to trust all the characters. You get to trust the Doctor a bit more. You know who Ian and Barbara. Are, you, you you understand who Susan is. You you trust the TARDIS. You know the thing that's their home, and then you can turn it all against them. I think the fact that it was placed what third in line is that right? Third yeah. story in it was t- it's too early, and I think that that would have definitely. I don't know, that may have put me off watching it for a bit, I've got to say, because it would be turning it on its head too quickly, too soon, before you get used to everybody. But, you know, maybe that's just me. Okay, the story... Oh, by the way, Simon, your tactical voting made no difference whatsoever. It still came second to last, which is exactly (laughs) where it would have been if you'd have voted it sixth. If anyone's listening and sort of thinking, well, surely you would have voted in Earthly Child or Daleks first, you know, because they are landmark episodes. But, you know, I think it's obvious to do that. And uh, I just felt the need. There's a very good reason I didn't mark Unearthly Child higher, but we'll come to that when we come to talk about it. This is uh, this really is tactical voting then. You're saying, well, these other stories are better, but I didn't vote them as best. No, but they're not better. I don't think they are better. (laughs) I think my point is, you know, I, I, I think We've done it before where we've voted like the five doctors be- uh, or the three doctors as the best. Um, oh, actually, I'm talking myself into a corner here because I did think that was the best story. But anyway, <laughs> just ignore me. OK, I'll tell you something interesting about the voting. All four of us voted a different story as our favourite. And the story that actually turned out to be our group favourite wasn't voted as anybody's favourite. Bonkers. Mm. God, we should vote for governments like that, eh? That's how it works, That's, a, that's I think. how we are now. Yeah. Look where it's got us. Um, the story, oh, and this is a shocker to me. The sto- This was the one <laughs> I voted favourite. The story that came in fifth of the seven was The Reign of Terror. Hmm. Maybe uh, it's because I'm not so familiar with it. I've seen it perhaps a couple of times. So. Do you know what? Uh, the, the new animation does it a disservice. I struggle to watch it. I struggled to get through it. Because um, of the animation or the whole but, story? Yeah, I, I found it really quite dull. 
Oh, really? Yeah, well, it, put it another way, it didn't grab me. And certainly when the animation came in, it I found it, because I'm a big animation nut, I found it distracting because sometimes it was rotoscoping, sometimes it was um, 3D uh, models. And it, it doesn't, um, it's not uh, consistent. Um, and I think that, I don't think the animation should do that. You know, I've, I've heard someone say before about the, um, reconstructions just using photos that would probably work better and I think I might watch it again with the old reconstruction I was going to say is it animation. right to judge the story based on the animation oh it's not it's the... not I'm just yeah. saying but I, all I can say is that I'd it's not a fair bef- point before the DVD had come out I'd never watched the story and then when mm. I did watch it I found it distracting so yeah. as yet I've not watched a decent version of it mm-hmm. yeah actually can I just uh, echo a bit of that there I watched it today right um <laughs> I watched the rest of it today, should I say, from the uh, animation onwards in my lunch hours. And I was thinking, um, wh- why? Uh, really, it looks beautiful if you freeze frame it. It's, it's beautifully done, all the shading and stuff. But I went, I watched the first, how many was it, three episodes or whatever, and I was kind of enjoying the fact it's 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 Doctor Who and it's old and all that. And then we got the animation, and unlike the invasion, it really jarred for me really jarred and I had to look away from the screen and imagine it was just on audio like I used to do um, and I enjoyed it a lot more because I could I could see the real people then I thought now this is stupid I've got to be watching it so I watched it and forced myself by the end of the episode I got used to it but Simon's right the rotoscoping is really creepy uh, and it hasn't got it hasn't got that um, I don't know it's not quick enough to deal with the emotions of the human face it's, it's really feels quite cheap actually even though I know it wasn't but anyway, that's my my take on the animation. I didn't. I I probably probably would have preferred the snaps, tele snaps, to be honest. Sorry. So BC. what you're saying is both Lee and Simon have voted Reign of Terror second to last, as you both did, because of the two episodes of animation. Did I vote as second from last? Yes. <laughs> okay, that was before <laughs> I finished watching. Um, I, I would have probably knocked that one up a bit higher actually over Edge. Uh, what was my second from last? Are we allowed to say that now? No, that was your second from last. It was. Last what was, was my third? Us. Does is or has that not come yet? Um, it was the Edge of Destruction. Yeah. Okay. So I think I probably would knock that up one. And I've got to say, it's beautiful to look at. What a great production! Great outfits. Fantastic amount of money spent on it. Whatever money they had, um, it looks great compared to the Sensorites. It's this is unbelievably brilliant. Um, and but the I think what I found a little bit annoying about it was this. Getting caught, escaping, getting caught, escaping, getting caught, escaping. But what I will definitely say about it, which is a big positive, is the characters were so brilliantly drawn. I think episode six was a little bit dodgy, but up until that point, the jailer is fantastic. All these people just stay totally in character. There's no messing around with the characters. They're written really, really well. Um, The Doctor is on absolutely brilliant form, um, a violent form as well. And uh, and it's all great, apart from Susan, who just whinges when she gets cold. But uh, so yeah, I I don't know why I voted that low. That low. I can't. I work love it. it. Out. Maybe it's I think I... it's the best written story of the series. <laughs> I really do. I because um, I like the stories with stronger characters, and so it's a toss up between this and the two John Lugarotti historicals, being Marco Polo and the Aztecs. And I just think there's something a little bit po-faced about John Lucarotti's writing. And I think Dennis Spooner's writing, which starts here in The Reign of Terror, 
knocks it into a cocked hat. I think it just kind of shows John Lucarotti's two stories up for being a little bit too serious for their own good. Hmm. To be fair, um, although I voted it low, it's only because the episodes that I voted higher than that I enjoyed more. Simple as that. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I liked other episodes more. That's fair enough. Shall we find out what Suki had to say about it? Yeah, go on him. He said the final story of the year was the Reign of Terror. After initially making a mention about the French Revolution in the very first episode of the series, the production crew were to bring it back to finish the first series off. Another serial that, due to missing episodes, is incomplete. Again, I watched this at the Wolves of Fenric meetings, but this time people didn't leave. Maybe they liked the historicals more than the sci-fis. Having only seen this once, even though I've got the video and DVD releases, I cannot remember much about it. Thanks, Suki. <laughs> but there you go. He says, actually, he says the first year, in his opinion, belonged to the historicals, even though it was the science fiction stuff that people will remember. Well, this is, I think this is what, you know, the production values on the historicals were much, much more interesting, um, you know, and to look at, they were more interesting. You look at the Daleks, you look at the Keys of Marinus, actually, and you also look at uh, the Sensorites, and all of the set designs are dull. They're not really very interesting, um, apart from maybe one or two in Keys of Marinus, I think. But generally speaking, uh, it's Ray Cusick, wasn't it? He was a set designer. Yeah. Right, yeah. And I think he's famous for saying with a couple of them um you know that he wasn't very happy especially with the terry nation stuff <laughs> because he's just yeah. saying oh i'm writing a blank room here you you design it uh and that's it and that ha- that's how it feels when you hit the reign of terror and marco polo and you know and the aztecs you're looking at the scenes and going wow this is the bbc when they're they know what they're doing with this stuff bbc yeah, it probably doesn't hurt that the bbc have got this amazing um yeah they have they've got it all yeah, there but, yeah yeah um, they're known for doing their historicals, and well, of course they've got all the costumes and what have you on on tap. Well, this is my point: is is Reign of Terror good BBC? Um, no, it's good BBC, but is it good Doctor Who? Because I felt like the Doctor Who were just, you know, the Doctor Who crew were just kind of plonked in amongst this backdrop of uh, an already existing kind of story. It didn't; they didn't really do anything, did they? They were just trying to get back to the TARDIS. That's pretty much all they did. There was no. Nothing for them to do as such. They weren't involved and they weren't trying to do anything. Um, well, that's um, something that's going to be pertinent in the story that we voted just above the Reign of Terror in fourth place, our sort of halfway point. And this is what Suki had to say about it. The Aztecs is my favourite serial of Hartnell's first year and his tenure. The Aztecs, written by John Lucarotti, is a delight from beginning to end. The four TARDIS crew members were on top form here, but praise is due to both Hartnell and Jacqueline Hill. Hill played Barbara as a 20th century person who just couldn't understand human sacrifices, and Hartnell as the Doctor trying to stop Barbara from changing history. It's a close thing between this and Marco Polo, but as this is based on what I've actually seen and not read, then my favourite of this year is the Aztecs. And that's a very pertinent point, because the Aztecs is the story that addresses the very notion of whether the TARDIS crew get involved or not when mm-hmm. they were back in history. And I think, that's I think it's a great showcase for Jacqueline Hill. I think she's superb in it. She is. Uh, but but getting back to JR's point, I think that, that that's true. But they and that's why I I put it above Reina Terry, because they have actually something to do. I know they've dropped into a situation but Barbara becomes the uh, centrifugal force of the whole thing, right? She's there in the middle of it all. 
and she thinks she has the power but actually by the end of it she hasn't and it and it, it teaches us something as well we get to learn quite a lot i know we learn a bit in the reign of terror but instead of it being just a historical info dump we get to feel the culture a little bit more um in the, the aztecs and we get to understand the way they think and you know the who's the is it who's the chap that likes to the uh, they call him the local butcher, the guy that does all the killings. Oh, the... Do you mean the... I can't remember. Ixoxoctol or something? I can't oh, you mean Tlotoxol? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say. Um, no, he's... he. You know, you start thinking, well, is he really the baddie? Is he really? Because, I mean, this is what they did. I mean, he believes that sacrifices will bring the, the rains or whatever, you know. So, um, no, I I loved it. And I've got to... You know, I've got to cock my cock my hat or doff my hat. Well, not cock it, but doff my hat to um to Ian for uh, kicking some bloke off a pyramid. That was awesome. <laughs> it's a funny point though, and this is something they didn't work out until what nearly fifty years later. You talk about going into history and saying, "Well, we can't change history because it's already happened," but you know, to somebody else, the future is also history. You know, to somebody in the 51st century, stuff that happens in the 28th century is also history. Mm-hmm. So the same rules should apply there. And really, wherever the TARDIS crew go, they either should get involved or shouldn't get involved. But they shouldn't be getting involved in some stories and not others. So I do think the Aztecs is founded there on a bit of a shifting sand you know a bit of a thin foundation well i think it had to be addressed at some point and they did it quite early on in the series well, but that's what i'm saying they addressed we, it in the wrong yeah, way they wrong shouldn't way. have yeah they shouldn't have said no we can't get involved they should have said we have to be very careful what happens well i think she, she we did, can have an effect she did try and get involved by trying to stop the, the sacrifices didn't she if i remember yeah, right yeah but the and point in fact the, the, point, is... the point is it just overrode it because the culture was already so in, it was so inset it didn't make any difference but she did give it a go and it, the writer could have turned around and said well this is the point when the aztec stops you know the one part of the aztec nation stopped doing it because it's not written down they could have done anything but it, that wasn't the point of what they were trying to make, I suppose. Um, no, and so you've kind of completely got my ass about it. <laughs> I wouldn't want to touch either of those, thanks. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is that shouldn't have been the point of that story. The point of that story should have been we when we go into history. Because there's even the quote, isn't there? You can't change history, not one line. Yeah, I know. And, I've, I've always thought about... The, sorry, you go. And the sense of the story is... That story has been written to demonstrate that when the TARDIS crew go in history, even if they want to, even if they try to, they cannot change it. Not yeah. will not, not do not, but cannot. Yeah, I know. And, and the it's, thing is... It's changed so much since. <laughs> well, the point of the story should have been, when we go into history, we've got to be very careful, because we can change things, and we should not. Yeah. I agree with you about the future episodes as well. Why doesn't it apply to that? It simply doesn't apply to it because we take the series well, from this present day. Mm. <laughs> well, it was a very that. simplistic approach back then, wasn't it? Well, from a characterization point of view, you've also got the viewpoint that Barbara goes, you know, you could argue that she goes power mad. She suddenly thinks, oh, I'm in this position of power. I'm going to abuse it. I'm going to do what oh, I she want. she does, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you ignore the time travel side of it, it's that, you know, she's a flawed character. As good as oh, she a, is, she's a flawed a character. very interesting story, and it's very well played out. 
But I just it's a bit of a it's a bit of an edge of destruction for me in that the whole thing is kind of based on a fallacy, based on something that shouldn't have been. And as much as I like the Aztecs, and I do, there's just something about it that offends my sensibility, if you will. Hmm. Mm. Was it was it four episodes this one, please? Yes, it was. That's probably why I enjoyed it a little bit more than Reign of Terror as well. If Reign of Terror had reined it in a little bit and made it four episodes, maybe oh yeah, but it the Reign been... of Terror shifts locations. Episodes one and six. It's like a four-part story with an extra episode at either end. Yeah. I mean, episodes two to five take place in the prison and in the sort of strong house where the rebels are, you know, meeting up and organising their plans. Episode one is in the farmhouse and episode six is in the pub. And I like that. It's almost the same yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah. it's almost the same way that Robert Holmes and Philip Hinchcliffe would do it mm-hmm. years later when they'd have a two-parter and a four-parter nailed together to make a six-parter. I kind of like it. Well, I voted it first. <laughs> Shall we move on, then? Mm. The story we voted third. Um, only, uh, oh, no, we've already seen what Sookie had to say about it, because it's an unearthly child. Mm. Um, actually, Lee, Lee you voted, voted this, this last. Behind, you? No, oh, no, no, Lee, sorry, you voted this first. <laughs> I voted it first. Do you want to hear yeah. why? Or? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... I voted it first purely on the strength of the first episode. The other three can go and fly. And That's why that, I didn't vote it first. Well, yeah, I know, well, I know, I know you have you to should. vote the whole story, but I'm voting... You know, okay, it's the whole story, but I wouldn't bother with the last three. <laughs> um, it's the first one. I mean, the first episode is a story on its own. It's always been felt like that by everybody. That That's the... That, it's a story on its own. It's the discovery of our, our legendary Doctor, the one we all love. And I, I know it's kind of almost... You feel like you have to. Part of you have to has to say, "Well, maybe I should vote it first because it's the first episode." No, no, you don't have to. But I would say, but you did. I, no, but I would say, look at that first episode <laughs> because not only one, it, not one exists, but two. You've got the pilot as well, which is equally interesting to watch and compare with and see how the characters are toned down and changed, and then you get who we ha- know as the TARDIS crew after all these years and the Doctor himself. Um, it's just a beautiful introduction to to this mysterious bloke. It's an it's a fantastic, brilliant um, story that I I like to read as well. Um, uh, even though when the book came out, it wasn't that brilliant. But it, you so know, what you're you, saying is you'd rather see like the um, the target adaptation of Doctor in the Daleks actually yes. put on TV. Well, yeah, that that exactly that intro for the you know the teachers and that sort of thing and the atmosphere that was built up. It was very atmospheric and very mysterious, and you really didn't know who this this weird kid was. Um, and the the two teachers, uh, you know, discover this junkyard that she's living in, and then they work out that there's a this t- box that hums it's like what what's this doing and of course in that day and age everybody saw police boxes as for what they were so it would have been a completely nuts and bonkers thing to walk into just a you know telephone box and inside is a bloody great spaceship with an old man going at you as every time you touch the control absolutely mad absolutely brilliant i don't know why anybody else didn't vote at first uh, perhaps because we all looked at the four episodes rather than just the one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that That'll one. But you know what? That one episode cancels out all the other three. It's as strong an episode as the other three. You know, forget it. You can forget the other three. Just watch that one. <laughs> that counts to me as a you know as a full story, and that's why I voted Unearthly Child as the first 
<laughs> and the tribe of gum didn't even get a vote. Okay, fair enough. Mark, you didn't though. You really didn't. No, no. Um, I mean, I do agree with Lee in as much as the first episode is cracking, um, but the rest of it is, in my eyes, not particularly exciting television. I know some people love the bits set back in year dot. Uh, 100,000 BC. Yeah, it really, it leaves me a bit cold, I have to say. I love it. That's why I voted it down. That's why they needed to invent fire, mate, to keep you warm. (laughs) I mean, some, you know, pretty cool stuff in there as much as, you know, you've got the doctor trying to murder someone, which is a bit creepy and gives you a slightly different idea of what this character is about compared to if you started watching it in the 70s when it was Tom Baker. But, yeah, it's just, no. The the first episode's great. The rest of it didn't really appeal to me, and that's why I voted it lower down. It, um, Simon, it did very on. It did very little to establish the character of the Doctor as a hero, didn't it? I mean, he really was an anti-hero for those first four episodes. And further, mm, mm. you know, the next story is the first four episodes of the Doctor... Being cowardly and um, acting in suspicious manner, you know, hiding the fluid link so they can go down to the city, being treacherous against the people he's travelling with, including his own granddaughter, putting her in harm's way Mm. when he sends her out to fetch the, you know, the uh, drugs files, Mm. Mm. you know. I mean, I think I I have issues with, um, do you remember being at school? And I used to do a lot of model kits of dinosaurs. I was mad on dinosaurs. And um, my teacher used to get so frustrated with me because I would come in with a model. And they weren't Airfix models. There was a company that made them just before Airfix started doing dinosaur models. And they always had a caveman as part of the model. (laughs) And my teacher used to get so irate that I would turn up. And uh, she'd say, why did you put the caveman there? There weren't any cavemen and all this sort of thing. And I was like, well, there's little footholds. They had to go on there. Um, and actually, years yeah. later, I started taking on board the whole thing of you know the caveman, and and, and it's not particularly well realised, is it? I mean, these these people talking like that, and um, it's of its time. It, it's another curiosity, isn't it, Tribe of Gum? Um, but I think yes. it's fantastic. Mm. How would you? Th- I mean, how would they have spoken? You couldn't have them speaking in grunts. You you couldn't make television like that. It would be ridiculous. Well. Ten thousand years BC is um, quite good. Mind you, Racco Welsh probably would have helped. Of course, that didn't come till afterwards. <laughs> uh, no, you you couldn't really have subtitles, could you? Because the whole point is that the TARDIS is translating, guys. Retcon. Um But I, I tell you what, I really did like in the first episode of the Tribe of Gum. Those three episodes was the TARDIS turning up. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the um, yeah, the TARDIS t- kind of materialising, and then that. Uh, shadow of the caveman coming out from uh, the foreground, and you didn't know whether you're on an alien planet or or where you were actually. So that's I, still in episode one, though, isn't it? So is it? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, so you still haven't managed. Oh, to get past really? That. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well yeah, but it's at the start of episode two as well. <laughs> See how good that first episode is. <laughs> I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying the rest of it's a bit. Pan. That's kind of a cliffhanger into the next story in the same yeah. way as, you know, watching the radiation counter go up at the end of the last part of the Tribe of Gum. Here's a cliffhanger into the next story. Yeah, there. It's quite a baptism of fire, isn't it, really? They'll, they'll only just get back to the TARDIS in the right state, don't they? 
Maybe they wanted. I mean, maybe the whole point of having the the cavemen and going back in time that far is to make it so blindingly obvious it's a time machine. I mean, if you're going to go back a couple of yes. hundred years, it's quite fun. It's pretty good to go back to revolutionary France or whatever. But they wanted to. I think they wanted to ram home the point, didn't they? That this thing can go anywhere in time. So it's like, how far back can we go? Uh, as far back as possible. Oh yeah, before the dinosaurs, just after the dinosaurs. Let's do that. And there it is. It's all right. It's okay. I, I just remember watching it with Tia Malap, B Sky B, back in the early nineties, and kind of thinking, "Hmm, when's the Daleks coming then?" This is uh, <laughs> your your conception of uh, Earth's history and evolution is about <laughs> as good as Simon with his cavemen. Oh yeah, this was set just after the dinosaurs. <laughs> you know, only a few million years late. <laughs> Two days. Uh, Yes, okay. I, I think it's... I, I really like the, the the Three Tribe of Gum episodes. I really do. I think it's a really interesting adventure. I think it's well told. I think it's exciting. And I think there's a lot more depth and a lot more of interest in it than there are there is in many of the stories that follow, the science fiction ones particularly over the next couple of years. There's a really interesting story being told there. And just because they're not speaking in cod Shakespearean dialogue, you're not you're not taking it in in the same way. But the the power struggle between these characters, and the you know it does have the capture and escape element that say the Reign of Terror does, and Frontier in Space, and all those many 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 other stories. But this time it's really interesting because they've been locked up in a cave, and the way they escape is by moving a rock at the back of the cave. I don't know, I just really enjoyed it. I thought it was a... I thought An Unearthly Child, the, the whole four-part, was a really interesting um, example of them taking a really pulpy idea and playing it dead straight. And after the Reign of Terror, that all changed, and they no longer would do that kind of thing. But there are several examples in that first series of Doctor Who of them taking really pulpy things and playing it really straight and by doing so coming up with something coming up with a formula that was unique i don't think that could have lasted i think if they'd have carried that on over the next few years it would have just become so po-faced it would have died a death and so i think the reign of terror needed to happen so that you could move on and turn doctor who into a fun adventure for all the family rather than just an adventure for all the family but you know, those those first few stories, because they're so unique and because they do that, I just find them really interesting, and that one in particular. And speaking of things that are a bit pulpy and played a bit straight, we've got two more stories to talk about, and they're both by Terry Nation. So, you want to know which one came second? Go on, JL. Hey, you're all still there. I was expecting <laughs> to get headed off at the pass there, but none of you none of you did. Uh, okay, the story that comes in second place. Terry Nation's second script for the show introduced the Vord and was basically a quest show, says Suki Kark. Different location, different cast, virtually every episode, which would probably have been a strain on the poorly budgeted kids' show. The Vord were just men in wetsuits and funny hats. No wonder they didn't catch on. Although, intriguingly, the Vord are suggested to be the ancestors of the Cybermen in the World Shapers in Doctor Who magazine. 
And now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because... Oh, oh no. Oh, yes. Oh, no, no, I had seen that. Uh, no, I was going to go back to his point about um, the different location each week being mm-hmm. a bit of a strain on the poorly budgeted kids' show. But actually, that's one of the things that they could do back then because of the way Doctor Who was filmed. Because the sets were struck and rebuilt yeah. again for every episode, you could move on to a different location week after week after week. And as long as the sets weren't ridiculously expensive, you know, you have sort of economies of scale here. For, the, say, the Daleks, you can build nice expensive sets because you've mm-hmm. got seven weeks' worth of budget to do it. Yeah. So the sets in the Keys of Mariners are pretty cheap and cheerful, but you do get that variety. And I do believe that somebody voted this first, and somebody else would have voted it first if it hadn't been for the Edge of Destruction. So, Mark... Yes. What's so great about the Keys of Mariners? I think it's just the sheer ambition of it. You know, we've already said it's a relatively limited budget they had. And the idea of having this planet with all these various regions in it, um, you know, it's really trying to... I know it's, it's pulpy and it's very kind of almost cartoony in a way, but it's actually presenting a world in a believable way. It's like... it's. I don't know, I think it's just a cool adventure. Um, the Vord, yeah, they are just guys in rubber suits, but I thought they were pretty cool. Maybe I'm in the minority. Um, but no, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a romp. You didn't think and the execution you... was uh, left a little bit to be desired? Well, yeah, but God, then... this is 1963 we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I tend to be fairly forgiving on on old TV watching it back. Yeah, you know. I mean you can say that it's 1963 we're talking about, but that's one of the things I really like about Anne and Earthly Child. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any issues with the execution of the Tribe of Gum sequences. I think they're fantastically no. well done. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're done on the same same budget, same studio. I think studio. the cast who had to wear the um, the caveman outfits who ended up getting bitten by fleas weren't entirely chuffed. Well, maybe not, but, you know, <laughs> that's what it would have been like anyway. But it looked great on the screen, yeah. yeah. No, I'd, I'd concede that. It's not the best-looking episode or story, but I just really enjoy it. I think you've got the variety there, you've got this fantastic planet they've come up with, and, um, yeah, I really like it. And you also have an actor from Citizen Kane. A movie which I haven't seen. Oh. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Seriously, George Kaluris is in episode one. That was an astonishing coup to get somebody like him. And you got the brains in jars as well. Awesome. Yeah, actually, there's a lot to enjoy in Keys of Mariners, as I'm sure Simon will agree. I will. I will. I mean, let's face it, it predates Key to Time. It's like a consolidated condensed version of the key to time um and it's kind of that same uh voyage of the dawn treader gulliver kind of thing of stepping between worlds with the central characters carrying on through um and it and all culminating in the in, uh, you got that the um the jury scene you know the uh the trial sequence the trial the sequence. Last two episodes yeah i think i just think there's variety in there and as as Mark said, the ambition there. We've talked about this episode before. The ambition is incredible on it, and, I, and it gets brownie points for me the same way as the Web Planet does of trying to do something more than they probably think they're capable of doing. And yeah, it doesn't it doesn't always work, but you know, 
it's like I always say, it's the gaps that are as important as the real, as the solid things in Doctor Who. It's what your imagination does. Um, so yeah, yeah, and the, I think the Vord work okay considering they kind of live in the shadows and they just appear every now and again. At least they don't squeak. <laughs> uh, I want to know what uh, what the grapes were because um, you know you know when they're in this lovely palace and it's all mm. it's all a it's all yeah. fake, right? And they're there in their rags, and and Susan's going, "Look, Barbara, look at my lovely dress." She goes, "They're just dirty rags," and she pushes them away. And I'm just wondering what the grapes were that she were eating. <laughs> they obviously weren't grapes. Mmm, nice. I'd say they're probably sultanas. <laughs> sultanas, <laughs> bits of anchovy face. Um, no, I, I, the keys. Are no, they're sultanas. They're old dried grapes. Oh, they're old. Dri- oh, of course they're. No, oh, you're so sensible. <laughs> um, yeah, Simon's hem- hemorrhoids. Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, no, uh, Keys Marinus had been one of my favourites for a long, long time. I don't think I voted that low anyway, but um, it's one of those things that I saw years ago on B Sky B, and I saw it all in one go, almost in one day, in fact, with all the other ones of this season, and I just really, really enjoyed it. And I think I've always been a bit of a sucker for quest stuff anyway, and I like a bit of fantasy. And it, it kind of fitted the bill of, of, you know, hunting down crystals for this, that and the other, or finding the sword of whatever. Uh, very, very interesting, fun ideas. Executed pretty poorly, but um, what it also reminded me was the amazing stories uh, that you used to get, or thrilling adventure stories, uh, or the um, Tharg's, adventures or thrilling quests or whatever future shocks thank you and they were just like self-contained stories with little kind of twists at the end and yeah that was very good but it was the execution as you say jr that let it down yeah i yeah i don't think i don't think that's really a great complaint though no but you're right mark brains and jars awesome yes (laughs) (laughs) and uh i spent thawing out yeah. And actually a, a potential rape sequence as well. Yeah. You know, there's... Uh, because you Not were saying... Kids. You, I think it was Simon was saying just a few minutes ago about the Edge of Destruction being... Well, and there you go again, Mark. You've just said it again. Not for kids. Except, of course, it is. I mean, people say, oh, it's a family show, but season one of Doctor Who is very ostentatiously for children. I mean... The best demonstration of that is that first episode of Sensor Rights. But that is for children. It's something for the children in between the stuff for the dads and the stuff for the teenagers. You know, grandstands on before and jukebox juries on afterwards. And here's something for the kids in between. And yes, it's something for the kids that the whole family can enjoy. But it is a children's series. There's no question of that. Can I um, I just say, did Terry Nation kind of reuse the Screaming Jungle in Blake 7? Here he is, the screaming jungle in Doctor Who about two years <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. And then again in 1973 in Planet of the Daleks. And so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Terry Nation wasn't averse to reusing things. As as positive as I have been about it, the acting was actually pretty bad throughout. And I know you say it, uh, that you know the possible rape scene was a bit grown up and that the rest of it was pretty childish. In its in its execution, as you so rightly say, Jr. But uh, it, hmm, I think if the acting had been a little bit more solid, because you look at the Reign of Terror, the acting that's it's brilliant uh, all the way through, solid, solid, mm. solid. Uh, Keys and Marinus isn't, but I think I understand Mark's brain. He likes he likes watching cartoons, so I'm with you, Mark. 
That's about my level. <laughs> it, was, um, it was. Can I go go back just with, go with this first series? My first experience of it was in Doctor Who Weekly when it first started. And Keys of Marinus was one that I always wanted to see well before I saw it. I didn't see it until it came out on VHS. Um, and also, yeah, Tribe of Gum as well. But, um, yeah, it's amazing how you, you know, and I'm with Sucky on um, Five Faces. That's the first time I saw Unearthly Child. Um, but those Doctor Who Weekly, uh, I can't remember, they had a name for them, didn't they? It was just, was it just the archives. Episodes? Yeah. The archives. Ep- episode guides, yeah. Um were... How do you mean the one where they had the cliffhangers? Was it? The one they had two different things. They had the archives where they'd look at various different stories and have a few photographs and just have the plot synopsis. Yes. There, yeah. that's it. The archives. The archives, oh yeah. Yeah. From from issue one. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. Which I dug out the other day, but I'd already used the transfers, unfortunately. Hmm. I've got about three copies of issue one and no transfers. Ooh. Oh, loads of people. Issue one's so easy to get hold of. They've made so many copies. What's it worth? Yeah, that's what I was waiting for. Yeah. Suki says, <clears throat> this was, and this is a story that none of us voted first, and yet, because <laughs> the voting for the rest of the series was up and down, you know, with some people's favourites being other people's least favourites, this was the one that was always going to come up on top, really. Uh, Suki says, This was followed by the Daleks, a story that cemented Doctor Who as a British legend. It wouldn't become a worldwide legend for at least a couple of decades. Uh, Terry Nation's blasted pepper pots became the talking point of the playground for the next seven weeks and beyond. The story itself is again slow, with at least two or three episodes of padding. The Doctor is seen as a man who would put all of his companions in danger just to satisfy his curiosity point I made earlier actually in fact yeah. the Daleks oh, what can you say really it is slow very very slow and once again the science is well a little bit dodgy shall we say but the central thrust of the story is well not exactly original but to be done like I said before in a manner so serious when the idea is pretty pulpy it's about monsters Versus, you know, perfect humans, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've only got to look at the movie, the uh, Peter Cushing movie, to see that, it, you know, it, it's there. The story is there, as it should be, and it could actually work at quite a good pace, but um, not as a TV version. Else. Well, I I mean, if you were to cut out the cave sequences, I think it would, uh, it would be a hundred times better, because uh, we get enough caves in Doctor Who, don't we, <laughs> to be honest? And I just think... Uh, that was I understand the point of that, but it just went on and on and on. And you're right, it was too long. Again, if it was a full episode, it might have just made a difference to the pace of it. But I thought it was a four episode because the story finishes at the end of the fourth episode <laughs> and then starts up again for another three. <laughs> yeah. But um no, I I don't know. It's, there's something about it that I just I just like. I mean, I I try to judge these on how many time the the viewability of it. So if it's something I just keep watching over and over again, or I go, oh yeah, I really fancy that again, then that's because I like it. And sometimes I don't know why I do that. It's the same with music. You know, you pick it up, you keep playing it, and you think, why am I playing this old rubbish? I don't know. I just like it. Uh, But it's the same with the Daleks. You, I just thoroughly enjoy William Hartnell's portrayal in this. He's a right deceiving old git. 
Um, well, there's that. There is that really interesting point at the end of episode four when the story is, to all intents and purposes, finished, mm. and they're just about to get in the TARDIS when he realizes he still hasn't picked up the Mercury. Idiot. And <laughs> and then yeah, but this is. I mean, th- people don't talk about this nearly as much in the as the scene in episode four of An Unearthly Child, I think it is, where he's going to knock somebody's skull in with a rock. Yeah. Right, but in episode four of the Daleks. In order to get the mercury link that he needs, he is prepared to put an entire species at risk. Yeah, yeah, you know? unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, he's. I, but I like that about him that he's really selfish and he's not like David Tennant. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Who's saying all oh, life is sacred and crying. Oh, I don't know. Uh, David Tennant's pretty selfish by the end. Well, he I is don't the, want to go. Yeah, yeah. You, you get to see it near the end, but you know all this kind of. I don't want to. Tread on a bug because it might have intelligence, um, but uh, nah. It does make him seem more alien, though, doesn't it? Because he's got his own morality, and uh, yeah, I think so. Just makes him a more interesting character, much more. And also, he does learn. I mean, the Doctor does learn as he goes through his years, so we get to see. They a couldn't have. Though. They couldn't have kept it up. It's no. one of those things. It's like, like I was saying just now about how seriously they take those first few episodes. They couldn't have kept that up because the series would have just, you know, turned in on itself and died. And the same with the character, if. The, if they'd have kept the Doctor like that throughout the whole thing, it would have become unpalatable for audiences. He had to mellow. What it was, was like nice. Baker, wasn't it, when he started? Mm. You know, yeah. They had to mellow that character out, otherwise people would never watch it again. What was nice was being able to watch him mellow and having the time to do mm. it across, say, around about three months, I guess. Yeah. Maybe four months, because it probably took place during Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. And what was nice for those audiences at home, I mean, can you imagine watching this in 1963, 1964, and, you know, tucked up in front of the telly, and back then telly was, you know, special, very special. We take it for granted now, they certainly didn't in 1963, being able to sit down and being transported to this alien planet. I mean, you were talking just now, Lee, about um, the first episode of An Unearthly Child Mm. being you know, something particularly special. The Dead Planet, the first episode of the Daleks, mm, mm. I think is every bit as good. I do. Every bit as special, yeah. Yeah, and, spe- you know, again, you it's hard to put it into context because I wasn't around then to watch it, but if you were to, there watching Barbara up against the wall looking really scared and this strange sink plunger coming towards it, and she's really acting her socks off, so you believe yeah. it, whatever it may be, you believe it. Um, you know, the kids must have been going, what is this going to be? And when they saw it, of course, I think it lived up to the expectations because it went mental across the <laughs> across the British Isles. So it was it was clearly a brilliant piece of direction, really well kind of put together first episode. Um, and a brilliant piece of design on the Yeah, dogs. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, totally. And a very strange reveal, like 10 minutes into the second episode, mm. Where the, well, actually, I say strange, odd is perhaps a better word, where the camera's on Ian and the Doctor, and just as the camera pulls back, the Daleks come in, and mm. they just kind of sort of congregate into the frame. Yeah. Very odd. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, there was one one scene, if I remember right, uh, the Khaled's uh, going to give food or something to the Daleks. Thals. 
Fouls. What am I talking about? Fouls, mm. yeah, sorry. Um, and they're just so wimpy all the way through. You've got a couple of main characters, haven't you? But the extras are like, you know, you just... I remember sitting down with a with a couple of mates and we'd had a few drinks. I'd seen it already, but they hadn't. And b- when it got to that point, we were all just jeering at the telly going, oh, just kill him off, soppy, <laughs> soppy nitwits yeah. or whatever. Because they were just so annoying. By that point, you think, oh, for goodness sake, just put a bit of something into your into your acting. <laughs> You just wanted the Daleks to kill him anyway, so um, difficult, very difficult to like the Thals. Basically, they were based on the Eloy in the time machine, though, yeah. really, with Rip- the Daleks taking the place of the Morlocks. Ripped off, more like, I don't think based on his... Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Homage. I'm not someone to say I don't like it when people sort of say, oh, so it's so crap, it's good. Um, but my favourite bit in the Daleks... <laughs> Is a bit where they're climbing through the uh, the caves. Yeah, but it makes it worth watching. You see Lee's making a face now. Is when I think it's Barbara just reaches out and then you just hear a little squeak and she's pulled off a bit of the polystyrene wall. <laughs> all oh, of really? a sudden, the black wall and all of a sudden there's a white patch, yeah. I don't think people would probably have noticed that back then. And no. by the way, that's in a Richard Martin episode, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Well, there you poor go. Poor Richard Martin. Poor Richard Martin, indeed. Why poor Richard Martin? Go on. Because everybody moans go, about how shoddy his work is. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Mm. Mm. Well, he's the man who shot the uh, jungle. JR? Of... Oh. Uh. <laughs> what? Hey? He's the man who shot the jungle of... Uh... Oh, I see. Uh, uh, yeah. The jungles of Mechanus with the uh, television camera hidden amongst the branches. <laughs> And the man who had uh, Dalek in the background of a shot and the uh, funfair exhibit in Ghana in whatever the year was, just slightly before the Daleks arrived. Right, right. But then, you know, in the Sensorites, the writer puts the Sensorite on the spaceship before the Sensorites arrive. Really? <laughs> yes. So, you know, it's not as if it's just directors do. You know, I'd rather have some... People moan about Richard Martin, but I'd rather somebody having too much ambition and not being able to realise it than somebody doing something dull. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah. I, I quite like the costumes of the Thals, actually. I don't wonder what they were made of. Really? Well, they just look a bit odd, don't they? I, just, I, I always look at them and think, what are they made of? Yes. It was, it, I always it, look at them and think, thank God my mother never put me in that when I was <laughs> six or whatever. They look worse when they're in colour. <laughs> Mm. Do you know, I, want, I want to start a new line in cosplay though. I do think um, everyone everyone does Daleks and everyone does all the cool monsters but nobody does the rubbish monsters or the, mon- the rubbish characters do they? I think it would be much more fun to just do Simon I think you should be the Slither from uh, Daleks Invasion of Earth No Mark I'm looking forward to seeing Simon at the next event dressed as a Thal from 1964 <laughs> yeah. No I've already said Male I want to build a Croton you build as many crotons as you like, but the next time we see you out, we want to see you dressed as a thal. Yeah, blonde wig the works. <laughs> uh, saying no. You've got the right eyes for um, you know, for the shading and uh, all the makeup. That'd be brilliant. That turquoise makeup that they have over their eyes. In the film, yeah, you got to do the film version because it's in black and white, isn't it? The old ones. You can't. You can't walk on as a black. You could walk on as a black and white thal. Can you do that? Yeah, do that. Okay, back to Sookie. 
<laughs> Sookie says, Ian and Barbara were the template companions for the next few years. Every companion since had to live up to the legacy of those two. Brave, strong, clever, able to act on their own initiative. Do some of the younger viewers know that Ian was made a knight and Barbara was a god for a few days? And William Hartnell went from being a grumpy old man, not to be trusted, to the man that you want at your side when the shit hits the fan. On the whole, this first season had more ups and downs. It went from what people had expected to be a mildly performing kids show on Saturday evenings to the show that the whole family would sit and watch, much like today's version of the show. That's uh, sucky. Mm-hmm. We've not really mentioned Ian and Barbara, but I mean, we're not here to talk about the companions, I suppose, and we've talked about Ian and Barbara before. We, we all have... love them, don't we? We do. They are awesome. Yeah, Ian and Barbara are awesome. Susan isn't, but um, yeah, yeah. But I think I have. I mean, it's hard, but who would you choose between... It's not between... Caroline Ford's fault. No, no, no. Who would you choose it? between uh, Ian and Barbara, though, as your best? Because the, uh, equal pairing for me, I can't decide. Probably Barbara, but I don't know. Well, I was talking to Eric Stadnick from the Doctor Who Book Club podcast, and he says you can't really think of them as individuals. He always thinks of them as Ian, Ian and Barbara. Barbara. Yeah. But, are but, they, are, but they are individuals. <laughs> Are we really sitting here discussing season one and having to say, oh, who's your favourite, Ian or Barbara? <laughs> no, I think it's... I really? Think it's, no, no, really, because I think it's interesting that, like you say, Eric Stagnett thinks that they are, they come as a pair, and they do. Character-wise, though, they are different, and Barbara had things to do, and she went through changes, and, and, and you know, there was that interesting moment in The Reign of Terror where Ian comes in, and he some guy gets killed who's a traitor, and he says uh, to Barbara, oh, he deserved it. And she goes, well, who are you to say who deserves what? And, you know, go and read your history books. Don't take one side or another, because, you know, they both think they're right. One man's traitor is another man's hero. So I think, you know, it's, they, it's quite important, actually, if we're talking about Doctor Who, to decide, you know, Ian or Barbara. Guys, what do you think? Discuss. Suki, you tell me, because you're the only one who listens to me. <laughs> JR? Um, Suki's gone. Uh, we've got Steve from Manchester instead, though. Moving oh. on. Um, oh, so actually, this is, uh, Steve, uh, this is Steve from Manchester looking back at last, last week's podcast. Regarding the Milk podcast, are there any fans more two-faced than those who grew up on 1980s Doctor Who? He says... Let's face it, 80s fans, the truth is that you're all mad jealous that your formative Doctor Who viewing years didn't coincide with the show's golden age, and you're trying to convince yourselves that pants like Time Flight and Delta and Greatest Show in the Galaxy were the sort of fabulous stuff that only the sophisticated can appreciate, and anyone who doesn't appreciate 80s Doctor Who is a bad fan. Uh, One thing you can always be sure of is that anyone who says that fans can't be... can be divided into haters and lovers, bad fans and good fans, just don't like hearing anyone who doesn't like what they themselves love. Why is it wrong for other people to hate the things that you love, but okay for you to hate the things that other people love? This is a subject we've not really got onto, is it? Mm. The subject of fans. There's a um, reason for that. <laughs> 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 oh dear. Well, I don't think... I don't think any any of that was meant like that. I mean, I didn't agree. I, I was listening to I listened to that podcast, which I thought was a brilliant, I think a brilliant episode. Steve's, yeah, I think Steve's using that podcast I think, as a launching point to think about something else there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's being a bit of a cheesemeister there, isn't he? I think. 
Maybe so. Mm. Um, he does. I, I won't go through everything else he said, but he does. He also says, "I must say that my disenchantment with the show isn't confined to the 1980s. After the Key to Time season ended, I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of stories I enjoy until the 2005 revival, City of Death, of course, Full Circle, State of Decay, The Two Doctors, and Bits of Battlefield. I don't even like Caves of Androzani, which I know makes me an outcast." He says. That's interesting, though. See, I don't think of it that way at all. I really enjoy the diversity of views that people have got, and I just find it really interesting. I want to know why people like a particular story that I might not like. I think it's more prevalent with podcasting as well. When you listen to other podcasters, I think people, even us, I mean, we have our little arguments and things, but we really do appreciate each other's view, don't we? Whether or not we think they're wrong, like JR is most of the time. But uh, we do generally think that uh, everybody out there's got an opinion and it's all valid because everybody's got their own personal experience attached to a show. It's a TV show, by the way. Um, and when you take it a bit too seriously and start arguing and threatening people and God knows what, then, you know... What's the point? It's not about that, is it? No, no. I personally think there's something good to say about all the stories, even if you're you know, not a fan <laughs> of a particular one. In fact, if you read, there's two books that came out quite recently. Apart from Time Sh- You and Who, um, Contact Has Been Made, Volumes 1 and 2. And if you leave through those, I think you'd uh, come out with a better opinion of a lot of the stories. Yeah, I'll have to read the one about Time Shite because I don't think it's going to convince me at all. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I very open-minded of you there. I think it is. You're on a fool's errand if you're trying to convince someone that a story's great if they don't like it. I mean, it's just the way it is. But it's like you say, you get all the different colours. And um, you know, to make that point, no one will ever convince me that Delta of the Bannerman is any good. Because I think Matt did say it was good, didn't he? Was that one of the ones he said was good? Yes, it was. And I, I spoke to someone else the other day who I deeply respect their opinion. Um, I won't name names, but I deeply respect what they say. And um, and they absolutely love Delta and the Bannerman, but I just cannot stand it. Oh, well, you see. That's very open-minded of you, Simon. Yes, you don't respect me then, because I've <laughs> said a number of times, <laughs> I think Delta and the Bannerman is, I wouldn't say great, but I think it's very underrated as a story. Vive la différence. <laughs> Indeed. Right, finally, one more email and then we'll be out of here. This one's from Gary Akers. And uh, this is after our third Gene doctor. Ackers. Yeah, Ganakers. Yeah. Gene Akers. Oh, is that Ganakers. the one where you, you pulled his email apart? <laughs> um, was that. Oh, could. Well, yes, pr- yes, it was. I think yeah. it was. Uh, you were reading out yes. and you, you kept interjecting. Yes, yeah, yes. Sorry, Gary. Yes. Well, it, well, will you listen to his email now, please? Yes, okay. Okay. Go on then. He says, another terrific podcast. Great to hear you four back together. Pertwee was my first Doctor and still my favourite. I saw Inferno back in 1975 and it's still my all-time favourite story. Gary's American, by the way. That's why he saw it in 1975 rather than 1970. By the way, thanks for correcting all the inaccuracies in my letter that you read. It was written in an angry, sad heat of the moment after Matt Smith's departure was announced. So there you go. He didn't seem to mind me well, tearing his email apart. That's very gentlemanly of you. I was, I was going to be yeah. interested to hear his reaction, cause, um, but he's been very, uh, what's the word? Magnanimous. Yes, exactly. Diplomatic. Indeed. 
Um, anyway, he says, thanks for a really strong and entertaining run of guest podcasts until the Fab Four reunite. Matt and Richard were both especially great on the show. Was Richard really that good? Because he didn't let me or Mark get a word in edgeways, and that's really <laughs> that's not That's why right. it was such a good show. <laughs> um, oh, this is why I've saved this one to last. I don't know what you'll make of this, but take note. Gary says, I had an idea for a show topic where all four of you, not just you, JR, get a chance to be writers. You could maybe call the episode What If or Alternate To. Now, here's the gist of it. Each of you choose two or three big events from the original or new series, such as a companion departure, the circumstances of a regeneration, the resolution of the key to time, or a series arc, something like that, that you thought was poorly written, misconceived, or otherwise badly handled. And more importantly, you tell us how you would have rewritten it. He thinks that would be fascinating to hear how each of us would have changed key moments from the show, and to hear what we all think about each other's changes. So what do you think, guys? Do you think we could do an episode like that? This sounds like homework. I think it does. I don't know about And that's why Yeah. That's well that's why I brought it up last and I'm gonna ask your opinion first. Do you think you could do it? I don't reckon we could do a whole episode, but I definitely think we could do a portion of a podcast. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think I think you could use that as a departure and not necessarily do a whole episode on that format, but we could do an episode on on important things that we think the series hasn't necessarily got right. Mm. And, you know, talk about how they may have been better. It's interesting, the what-if thing. Uh, sorry, go on, Mark. Sorry. I was going to say, JR could probably do a whole hour just on the stuff that Eric Saber didn't do right. Well, yeah, but Gary's talking about important things. Like for... Uh, well, I'll throw... Yeah. But I'll throw... T- no, I'm talking, talking about event moments. <laughs> but I'll throw a couple out at you, just for starters, just to think about. Um, and Gary brings one of these up himself, the resolution of the key to time. Now, yeah. when Matt was on the other week, he was saying, well, that's, you know, he he was saying how the resolution of the key to time was just, you know, not good. But I counted with, I think, is the only resolution that story could have had. But, you know, we could do an episode looking into, is the resolution to the key to time the resolution that story should have had? Or... Is Tom Baker's regeneration? Oops, he fell off a tall building. Now he's regenerated. Really, the regeneration that a seven-year doctor should have had? Yeah, that kind of thing. Mm. How we might, and you know, using Gary's format, we might come up with alternative suggestions of our own. What do you think? Mm. An alternate history of Doctor Who, guys? Yeah, Just give not? it a go. Oh, it's it's yep. interesting because only um, earlier in the week, I I chanced upon a youtube video of somebody doing a what if of the phantom menace and it was utterly brilliant and interestingly that night i said to you about it lee didn't you you said that's really weird because yesterday i was only just thinking about that so to do the same thing with doctor who would be brilliant there there you go then a what if of doctor who Mm. right we will do that should we do that next time uh we'll have a go okay next week be careful what you ask for gary Mm. yep (laughs) okay next week that'll be what if (laughs) In the meantime, I was JR. I was Lee. (laughs) I was Mark. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. (laughs) 